0: Anyone tired but wide awake this morning? (laughs) Wide awake to God, wide awake to what he might do in your heart. Um, uh, When I think of uh, the Christmas story, in particular today's Christmas story, uh, there was one guy who was really wide awake who reminds me of Christmas. I don't know if he celebrates Christmas. I don't know how he celebrates Christmas. But there's something about him that reminds me of uh, the some of the people that will look in today's passage. Uh, his name is Ali Demarkaya, and he lives in a city of about a half a million, half a million people in southwest Turkey. Uh, the town he, he uh, comes from is called uh, Denizli, and he's what you would call a passionate supporter of soccer. He loves the game. And we have a number of people in this congregation who love soccer. I love soccer. But he takes it to kind of a different level. He is uh, crazed uh, about the game. Uh, so much so that uh, about a year and a half ago, he um, got a little bit too worked up in one of the games and earned himself a one-year ban from the stadium where his team uh, plays. He it just, just got a little bit out of hand, a little too excited, and an incident took place, and they said you know what, Ali, um, we'll, we'll give you a little rest for a year and you can come back and try again at that time. That was hard for him to take. Uh, it was particularly hard for him to take uh, when the rival team came to, uh, came to, to uh, Den Leeds and, and uh, was preparing for their big game. Well, people knew how much Ali uh, loved the game. He, he actually has the uh, nickname Yamuk Ali, which means crazy Ali. Uh, because he is so crazy about the game. And knowing how crazy he is about the game, he was actually required as part of this uh, sentencing for the incident that he had to report to the police station and sign a document at the police station swearing that he would not go to the stadium to watch the game. He signed the document. But then he went to a rental company and for $86, he was able to rent a crane that hoisted him up over top of the stadium wall so that he was able to watch the game and not only watch the game, but actually lead the, the, the fans who knew his reputation and how much he loved the game, lead them in a big cheer uh, as they went on to win 5 nothing over their great rivals. Ali loves soccer. Now, Ali is is an interesting person because for me he illustrates that for whatever is the most important thing in your life you will do anything you will give anything you will do anything for that one thing that is most important to you for ali for for yamukali that is his game of soccer the beautiful game for the people in our story today for the wise men that thing that they were willing to do, whatever it takes, was the Christ child. It was seeing and encountering that long-promised Savior that the scriptures pointed to and that they had heard rumors of. It's important for us to learn from them. And in fact, they have inspired people uh, throughout the centuries because, because of that that uh, desire to, to do whatever it takes to, to see, the, see the Christ child, to encounter him. It, they help us because maybe for some of you, you are on a journey. And often there are obstacles in the journey. People's tradition, people's biases, people's background, different things can become obstacles in that journey. And so we can learn from these Christmas seekers. They're also helpful because for some of us, the problem is it's all become just too familiar. And that familiarity can become the obstacle that really helps us, really keeps us from hearing the Christmas message, from uh, responding to the message as it is rather than it getting lost in all of the other things that have been associated with Christmas over the years. So I want to encourage you to learn from them, to, to enter into this, this story as we see their account. Uh, and to do that, we need to go back to the scriptures, to uh, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 2, uh, verse 1. encourage you to turn there with me, if you would. Uh, in the Pew Bible in front of you, it's on page 757. And if you just keep that out in front of you, uh, it'll remind you that... Uh, I'm, I'm just going to walk all the way through that passage this morning. And by having it open in front of you, it'll remind you that what God says is most important. What I say is is only helpful in in as much as it helps you to understand uh, what what God is uh, teaching us from his word. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 2, and I'll read from verses 1 to 12. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the word of God. Now the first thing that we learn here is that Christmas seekers go the distance. Uh, They don't get bogged down in the obstacles or the inconveniences that inevitably come when someone sets sets their heart to seek the Lord. Like Yamukali, they do whatever it takes to get to him, to see him, to encounter him. Christmas seekers go the distance. Now, in verse 1, when this story opens, we learn that it has been some time has passed since Jesus has been born. And uh, some, some visitors from the east have arrived in Jerusalem. Uh, these uh, wise men, or Magi, as they're called, uh, would likely have come from Persia or Babylon. Uh, they would have been trained in Zoroastrianism and astrology, and a- as Magi or as wise men, their role was to serve as uh, advisors to their king. Uh, they would have they would have been trained in various arts and would have been expected to give. Uh, wisdom and direction and leading to the the royal officials that that uh, they served under. So, having been trained in, in in astrology, trained in Zoroastrianism, they had some sense of, uh, of of the stars on one on one side, but they also had exposure, almost certainly, to uh, to the Jewish hope. Because ever since the exile to Babylon, there had been a sizable settlement of Jewish people living in the east and settling in that land. and They would likely have been exposed to their teachings and have heard the rumors of a long-anticipated savior, of a, a coming king who would not only rule but bring salvation and bring hope and peace. And and having heard those rumors, having having listened to those those uh, uh, teachings from from the uh, Jewish community, they also saw that there was something unusual happening in the sky. Uh, it was often believed at that time that that there would be large. Um, uh, signs in the sky when there was the birth of someone important. And they interpreted what they'd seen in the sky as something dramatic and remarkable had, had happened. And they believed this was to be the king that was to be born. So there was that uh, sense of anticipation. and The trip that they've taken to get to this point is likely over 1,200 kilometers. They have probably been on camels now for more than six weeks. And they arrive in Jerusalem assuming, hey, if there's a king to be born, surely he would be born in the capital. When they ask in verse 2, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? They assume that everybody would know. They'd assume surely an event this historic, this huge, would set the entire city uh, uh, abuzz. That that there would be a sense of, of excitement and passion about what was taking place. And they arrive, and Herod seems to know nothing about it. Nobody seems to be talking about it. They're not even Jewish, and they're convinced that the long-awaited birth of the Messiah surely is worth a 1,200-kilometer journey. Surely it is worth their attention, their devotion, their commitment. They, they have that, that sense of, of anticipation, And so they're stunned when there's not more joy and there's not more excitement. Verse verse 3, though, tells us why. It gives us a hint why that's not the case. Because in verse 3 it says, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. He was troubled because the birth of a king, someone who would rightly lay hold to this this, uh, title of king, would become his rival. He would be a threat a threat to his power and to his authority. And and when it says, and all Jerusalem with him, it's with a recognition that it would not just be his rule and his power that would be threatened, but there would be others also. Because Herod knew that he didn't rightfully deserve that throne. He wasn't a son of David. He wasn't even a son of Abraham. He he didn't rightfully uh, inherit that throne. He had taken it. And so he feels the threat of that. Feels that in the birth of a true Savior King, that his own power and authority would be uh, at stake. It's the same thing today that keeps people from really entering into the celebration of Christmas. We can sing the songs, we'll enter into the traditions, but we know that if we are to truly worship Christ as king, as the son of God and the savior of the world, it means that he has the right to rule and I don't. It, it means that, that he, he, he has authority over my life and I need to submit. If he is king, then I'm not. If he will lead, I need to follow. And many of us feel threatened by that. Threatened by that, not so much in the general sense, but there's often particulars that we don't want someone with that kind of authority in some of the details of our lives that we would like to be our own king over. And so as we not hear the Christmas season, but as we, as we think of the Christmas child, we can be troubled as Herod was and troubled for our own authority and for what Christ's <laughs> demands might, might call of us. But Christmas seekers go the distance. They, they also act on God's word. Because what we see in this passage is that while God gets the attention of some astrologers through a, through a star, the star wouldn't ultimately be enough. The star was only to get their attention to drive them to the scriptures that would lead them to Christ. And so it, Christmas seekers need to respond to the word that they're given. It's interesting in this passage because it gives us a little insight into the heart of God, a little window into how God operates in this world. Because in Scripture, astrology is condemned. God forbids looking to the stars for guidance because so often it is those stars that keep people from seeing and responding and being led by the one who made the stars. They, they more often than not get in the way. And so, while God forbids that, he isn't beyond using them, uh, using the stars to get the attention of some stargazers. And and that's what he does in this passage. As you hear reports of people coming to Christ from around the world, it's interesting, he does, God continues to do things like this. He may, to some people, in in this passage, he's getting people's attention through the stars. Uh, For other people, he'll get, their attention through revealing himself in a dream, uh, through revealing himself, through a remarkable miracle. For other people, they give testimony to sounds or voices or different ways that God will reveal himself and get their attention. Uh, I stayed in the home of one man when I was visiting a church in the Windsor area, and he, he told me of how he came to to know Christ. Because as, as he first told me about his background and his story, I thought, I don't know, frankly, how, how you would come to know Christ. Because he said, when I left work every day, I'd get off, he had a factory shift, and he would stop off at a series of bars on the way home from work. And he would drink at each of those bars, and he just kept that as a pattern. And he would drink his way home he would get home he would continue drinking and and uh, that was his pattern and on this particular day he had made it to his third bar and he was already drunk he had uh, entered in he he'd sat down he had begun drinking at this at at this particular bar and he said to me Paul as clearly as I'm hearing your voice right now I heard what was felt to me as a voice from heaven that called out my name and I looked around and there wasn't anybody that I knew there wasn't anybody calling and I knew that it was the uh, voice of God and he said Paul I stood up in the bar where I was and I looked up to heaven and I said yes Lord and it it just God used that opportunity to get his attention uh, it, 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 it arrested him, it, it, it got him, him awakened to the reality of God, and as strange as that encounter was, he uh, responded to that encounter, got involved in a uh, local church, heard the good news of the gospel, and his life was profoundly transformed, just a new person. And and it's a reminder to me as these as these wise men in, in today's account are a reminder to me. God meets people where they are. He reveals Himself to to people in the midst of their circumstances, but He never leaves them there. He then takes them to His Word. Ultimately, it is the Word of God that transforms people. The star that leads the wise men to Jerusalem. Uh, Takes them in the general direction, but they will need to hear the word of God and the prophecy of Scripture to get to Bethlehem. Herod, as you see here, he assembles some religious scholars and they read to him the, pro- the prophecy from the prophet Micah. The Savior was to be born in Bethlehem. What happens next is comical because although these foreign astrologers have been traveling for 1,200 kilometers, they hear the message, they get the news. Jesus, is the, the, the Savior, is to be born in Bethlehem, and seemingly, they pack up their camels and press on. It's another 10-kilometer journey. You couldn't fault them at this point for taking a bit of a rest, uh, for taking some time to do some sightseeing in Jerusalem. Who knows how long it would be before they would see the capital city again. But they seem more interested in the Savior that was to be born. That part perhaps isn't too surprising, but then we see, in, as, as we move down, probably what is more shocking. More shocking that the chief priests and the, and the scribes don't go anywhere. They hear this news that from 1,200 kilometers away, some foreign dignitaries have arrived, some royal, avar- uh, royal uh, advisors and academics who have studied these things are have come they're convinced that a messiah has been born they're heading to bethlehem and the religious leaders having seen and heard and witnessed all this just go back to their bible study they're not even willing to make what would they, they could walk the trip in 2 hours they could make the trip to Bethlehem. Not even one of them seems to to be willing to disturb himself to go and check it out, to go and see maybe it's true. And I believe that Matthew includes this little detail for us because we know that you spend any length of time in in church or Christian circles, and it's so easy for us to be lulled into complacency where just the the Bible study becomes for the sake of the Bible study and church becomes for the sake of church and for the sake of our tradition and our habit and we can stop actually listening. We can stop actually responding and and fail to recognize that it is only in responding to the word of God that we can find Christ. It is only in trusting in the invitations that we receive from God that we can be transformed by him. And so those, those religious scholars who just couldn't seem to wrestle themselves away from their Bible study long enough to go and find Christ, even though he was 10 kilometers away, they are a warning and a challenge to us to make sure that we're actually listening, that we're hearing that we're responding and we're taking those steps to not only not only show up, but to actually respond and allow him to change us. So Christmas seekers act on God's word. Finally, we see that Christmas seekers give Jesus their worship. Because while Herod is defensive and the religious leadership are indifferent, the wise men give us a picture of true adoration. Christmas seekers give Jesus their worship. As they head toward Bethlehem, all it takes is this confirmation in the star, uh, the, the reminder that God is still leading them, God is still guiding them for them to celebrate. In verse 10, it says, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. That helps us to know that this isn't just a calculated assignment for them. It's not just that they have been sent by someone, one of their higher-ups, or, or they just it was a hobby to them. They were just going on, on this mission out of curiosity. It stirs actual joy and delight in their hearts. They, they are, are feeling this, this mission that they, that they are upon. When they see the Christ child in verse 11, they fall down and worship him. Notice, if you will, that they don't fall down and worship Mary as well. It is only Christ that is given worship here, but that is consistent with the rest of Scripture. Only he is worthy of worship because only he is God become man. He is God in human flesh. Not even angels accept worship, although when people are confronted with angels, people want to because of their glory, because of their brilliance. People are are moved to worship when they're in the presence of angels. They don't accept it. But here, a baby that was born a savior, a baby that was born a king, rightfully receives worship because he alone is God in human flesh. It's a reminder that Jesus isn't just worthy of our study. He's not just worthy of hearing or slavishly following. He's not just worthy of our religious adherence. He's worthy of our worship. Worthy of us expressing love and adoration, trust and adoration. He inspires that in true Christmas seekers. Now the wise men's joy in Jesus and worship of him comes to a climax in verse 11. They open their treasures, offer him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and they express through these gifts the extravagance they feel towards Jesus. They express how much they value him, how much they mean to him. This is how Matthew begins the gospel with these foreigners from afar bringing worship to Jesus. How it ends the how he ends the gospel in Matthew 28:17 is with the disciples worshiping not the baby Jesus, but now the glorified Jesus. And the message is that Jesus is worthy of our worship, that he, he, had, he has come and he is of such, such value that we are to give him value. This Christmas, that may not be easy for you. For some of you, you may feel that Jesus is foreign to you that the teachings of Scripture still seem foreign to you. You're still trying to get your head around them because of it, it's so foreign to your background or your beliefs. Or like the religious Jew, maybe for you, the problem is that it's all too familiar to you. It, it just becomes something that you have done so many times that somewhere along the line, it's lost its joy, its delight. Somewhere along the line, you lost your worship. Maybe there are physical obstacles that make it difficult to you. Maybe things are so hard for you right now that it's difficult for you to enter into this worship of Christ. And yet if we're we're to take this passage as seriously as it's given to us, as the word of God, we need to recognize that that is exactly what we are called to do. To overcome those obstacles that would keep us from worship, whether that means a 1,200 kilometer camel ride Overcoming uh, religious or ethnic uh, boundaries, that they did in this way, and and re- recovering and regaining that Yamuk Ali kind of, of of adoration, but not for the things of this world, but here for the Savior that was born to us. Let's give him that worship as we look to him now in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for sending Jesus. He deserves our worship, our gifts. He deserves our attention and our delight. Because he's the promised king, the savior of the world, and because he's the son of God. Father, we thank you for the peace that he gives, the joy that he grants, and the eternal life that he offers. Thank you for the riches that are ours in him. We worship him as our king. In Jesus' name, amen.